Paul from Two Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. This two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, May 3rd, we are studying 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 to 21. In today's text, St. John concludes his first epistle, encouraging us in true Christian confidence that we would know that we have eternal life through faith in the Son of God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Philip Hoppe. Pastor Hoppe serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Pastor Hoppe, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Glad to be with you again today. So we get started today. Give us some context. We have the last text here in 1 John. What should we know about John, his epistle, anything that'll help us with our verses for today? All right. Well, I think one thing we can say overall about this epistle is it tends to sort of repeat itself, but in different language. Um, And so I think we'll find that again today that um, I guess maybe I'll say this to start is one way I've always described this book is that, you know, John encourages us that Uh, While Christians will certainly fall into sin and that we need to be honest about that uh, and know that we have that uh, Savior Jesus when that occurs, that we are not to walk in sin. And I think really, again, that's sort of what we're going to hear in this uh, particular uh, part of this uh, epistle, this uh, end of the epistle, is that he's going to say that again with a little different wording than he has said it uh, earlier on. Uh, Then I think maybe more in the immediate context, we just need to be reminded that uh, John has told us that we need to believe the testimony of the Father about the Son, and then we're sort of told what that testimony is, namely that if you have the Son, you have life, you you have the Father, Um, and uh, now he's going to kind of uh, turn us here to assure us of our salvation. If we indeed have heard and believe that testimony, uh, and then we kind of go forward as to what's the fruit of that, right? If we uh, indeed know these things that we are to know, uh, what does that mean for us, uh, both in terms of our prayer life uh, in this section, and then also uh, in regards to sin again, uh, as he's talked about many times. So as we think about this epistle, repeating itself, John coming back to the same points time and time again, the conclusion of this epistle is going to be quite different than what we are used to, say, from St. Paul, where he greets people or he maybe brings things to some kind of more of a conclusion. St. John is going to reiterate things he's already said. Is there a, I don't know, is it it climactic in that sense or is it just, this is the, the main point? I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I guess I've always just kind of taken it as this is sort of his uh, pedagogical kind of uh, way of doing things. You know, there are those, I mean, we've all had those teachers that uh, sort of take you from A to B and once they're past A, they don't go back to B. And then there's those that sort of just circle uh, back upon the same point and often again saying it in a slightly different way or maybe one time asking it in a question and another time doing that. And I guess I kind of see it in that way, although I think the the end of this like you said, because it is is a little bit different than what we expect from a lot of the other epistles, it it does sort of strike you at the end that it's almost just like, hey, don't, you know, don't get distracted by anything else, you know, by greetings or anything else. I want you to leave this letter knowing exactly why I wrote it. So, Mm. all right. So with that in mind, here is the text. This is 1 John 5, beginning at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, 
he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's our text for today. That's 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 to 21. Pastor Hoppy, the first verse of our text, John tells us his purpose in writing. He's mentioned other times why he's writing. For example, in 1 John chapter 2, he said, I write these things to you so that you would not sin. Here he's saying a, a different reason or a complementary reason, perhaps, that he's writing. What does he say about the reason for his writing here? Yeah, so I think this uh, section actually echoes uh, his gospel uh, very well, right? In John chapter 20, uh, we're told, you know, this, that uh, it's kind of this conclusion right after um, the account of doubting Thomas, as we often usually refer to it, or disbelieving Thomas. Um, He says, you know, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. And, you know, uh, John will go on in that gospel, right, to talk about, you know, how many volumes he could have written about, right, if he had included all of Jesus's acts, uh, his miraculous acts, his signs, uh, as well as his teaching. Uh, But here we're told very much a similar thing that he says, you know, again, if you believe the testimony of the Father that those who know Jesus have life, well, then indeed, those who believe in the name or in that witness, we might say about the Son of God, then you can know that you have eternal life. And John here, you know, especially likes this language of know, and it's a very comforting word to us, I think, uh, for those of us who, you know, can often be tempted by the devil to try to be uh, brought into some sort of doubt. And, and John brings us back time and time again and says, if you have Jesus, you know this. And I know as a pastor, I'm often struck how many times that, you know, you talk to somebody about eternal life and they will use the phrase, I hope, um, instead of I know. And, uh, you know, sometimes that's just, a, you know, maybe just a, a way of speaking, but sometimes you get the sense that there really is a uncertainty there. And John would have us know that if, again, if you have Jesus, and I think this is all of the New Testament, right? That gives us this assurance. If you've got that, you've got everything, right? I mean, think of the book of Colossians also, where they were being told they needed to know these other things. And, and uh, the apostle Paul just says, no, if you got Jesus, that's, that's the whole bit and you have eternal life. And what a comfort it is for us to know that and to ward off the devil's uh, lies and temptations with such truth from the Word of God. Mm-hmm. I think this is, you're right about the, the pastoral nature of what John is writing here, that this is something that, that our hearers and, and Christians in general will think about. And, and sometimes, you know, that the language of hoping is a, there's a scriptural use of the word hope, but the scriptural use of the word hope is filled with a lot more certainty than the typical American use of the word hope, which is why when you hear someone say, I hope blank in our context, there is that element of uncertainty that John really is trying to get rid of here. And this is a wonderful thing that God would have us be certain about the gift of eternal life. And I really think that this is one of the the hallmarks of our Lutheran confessions as well, is that we as, as Lutherans desire to to extol and to proclaim this certainty that we have in Christ. And when you start to talk, start to talk to Christians of different confessions of faith, you often see that uncertainty that's there, whether it's on the more the Roman Catholic side or more the reform side, either way you go, you start to notice that uncertainty that's there. And I really think it's one of the hallmarks and the beauties of the Lutheran confession is that we are constantly talking about the certainty of our salvation in Christ. 
Yeah, I mean, it is that clear conscience, right, that we appeal to God for, um, that he gives us through words like these, where, again, we can know rather than, like you said, this this hope that says, well, you know, maybe I'm 60-40 on this one, right? But you're right, the, you know, the living hope that we've been born again to uh, through the resurrection, as Peter says, right, is is not one of, well, maybe, it's, well, I'm just waiting to get there, right? I know I'm going, and I'm just hoping until that time when the fulfillment comes. Yeah, yeah. So with the with this matter of, of certainty, I, I've heard this before, that Sometimes Lutherans, because of our emphasis on this certainty, will get accused of arrogance. It's arrogant that you would say you know that God's going to save you. Tell me why it's not arrogant to have this knowledge, Pastor Hoppy. Well, ultimately, it's not arrogant if it's based on boasting on Jesus Christ, right? I mean, if it is, um, and I think, like you said, in those other traditions where there's much more uh, talk and emphasis at the very least, and some sometimes downright just bad theology in this regard, uh, on man's sort of role in salvation, whether, again, that's an official doctrine of their church or just something that seems to be emphasized, even though it's supposedly not a doctrine of their church, um, you do see this uncertainty that comes because they're now thinking about am I worthy in the sense of have I made myself of worth rather than I'm worthy because Christ has considered me worthy. He has died for me and therefore now I have uh, this gift. So, uh, you know, let us boast in the Lord all the more, but, you know, let us not boast in ourselves. And hopefully when we talk about these things, people don't get the impression that we're saying, well, I'm certain because I've you know never done anything wrong or because I'm just really, uh, you know, a holy person or, or even, you know, I just have um, a pure confession that I've come to on my own, whatever it is. No, let us say our, our confidence rests because we understand who gives us that confidence and that his work is perfect. Yeah. And I think that's why it's really good that you brought up the purpose that John gives in his gospel these things are written so that you may believe. That's where the certainty comes from. Not that something, not something inside of myself, but what God has told me. And if God has told me something, he doesn't lie. He can't lie. And so I can have absolute confidence. I can know that I have that salvation because God has said it. And that's where, again, it's not arrogance at all, but it's, it's true humility. I, when I look at my life, I can't imagine that God would save someone like me. But he's said he has. He's shown me that great love in what his son has done for me. And so I can know that I have eternal life. And it's a, it's a wonderful confidence that God gives us to rest in. And John writes for that purpose. Oh, what, a, what a marvelous thing. So John continues with that language of knowledge and confidence into verse 14. And you mentioned prayer is going to show up here. It comes up in verse 14. John says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. This is a, a verse that perhaps is ripe for misunderstanding. Help us to understand it rightly. Sure. This is one of those passages that, you know, when you uh, kind of read it out of context or it's taken out of context, you can just go, well, gosh, doesn't this just say that I can ask God for anything and he sort of has to give it to me? <laughs> um, you know, sometimes this is, you know, referred to when it's put into sort of a uh, religious uh, instruction, uh, you know, in certain churches as, you know, this name it and claim it, sort of that as long as you ask in confidence, um, God sort of has to give it to you. It's almost like it's yours and you sort of unlock it by asking and then God goes, well, here you go, you know, kind of this uh, vending machine kind of idea of God that he releases now that blessing because you push the right button. But not only here, but wherever we get these passages about sort of ask and I will give it to you. It's always amazed me that when you read on, it always goes on to say, you know, those who ask for the Holy Spirit. Or in this case, right, if we ask anything according to his will or in his will, um, you know, it is according to in the Greek here. But the idea here is both 
um, you know, sometimes we'll pray and we'll say, you know, thy will be done. And it's good that we would. That's one kind of praying according to God's will. But the other kind is where we know something is God's will and we simply pray for that. Uh, and in fact, in our prayers, we may well say, God, I know that you say desire uh, the salvation of all the lost. And therefore, you know, I pray uh, that you would help me to speak the word of gospel uh, to my friend Tony. Right. We know that that is something that he desires because he's already revealed it to us. And that's what he promises that we should be assured that those prayers are heard. And ultimately here, I think, you know, um, not only heard, but that is, you know, says we have the request that we ask of him. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I, I tend to think that a lot of times um, we're pretty quick to catch the error of just sort of the pray for it and God has to give it to you. But I don't think we want to go to the other side here either, where we miss that these are bold words here. These are have confidence. God will give. These are promises of God. And therefore, we don't want to just say like, well, prayer doesn't really affect anything. God's going to give you what he gives you anyways. No, he actually says here, pray according to my will and I will give you these requests. And so we we want to have that confidence. Uh, not again, a confidence that rests on us, but a confidence that says we have this heavenly father who's both told us to pray and has promised to answer those prayers. Yeah, we, we were talking about this in adult Bible class recently here at Faith. We're talking about the Sermon on the Mount where, you know, Jesus there teaches us to pray. And the, what's always struck me about Jesus' command to pray there is he, he tells us to pray because our Father already knows what we need, which seems a little counterintuitive at first. Like, well, if God already knows, then why should I ask for it? Because he, he already knows, so he doesn't really need me to ask, but, but I should. And it really, that is, that then, as I pray and I receive what I have asked for because God desires to give it to me, that does strengthen my faith. And, and to what you were saying about, you know, we, we certainly want to avoid the name it and claim it idea of prayer. But sometimes I do think we go too far the other way and we don't, we don't have the confidence that we should when we pray. And I, I've experienced this myself a couple times where uh, perhaps I had a, a difficult conversation that I knew was coming up and I, I was convinced in my own mind that it was going to go poorly. And so I, I prayed and then I had the conversation and the Lord brought about a very fruitful conversation. And uh, I was sort of surprised by this until I realized, well, <laughs> you, you prayed about it. <laughs> why, why weren't you <laughs> expecting God to answer it according to his will? <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely true. And I mean, we can even see this sometimes in our prayers for healing. And again, we we do understand, right, that that until the last day, not every disease is going to be healed again and things like that. But I know sometimes, too, you know, I even think occasionally in our prayer of the church that, you know, is put out for us, it's sort of like we pray, well, God, bring healing to these people. But since you're not going to do that, why don't you comfort them also, you know, while they continue to suffer? And again, both of those individually are good prayers, right? That, that, that we would ask for healing and that we would ask for God's comfort. But we don't want to take those two too closely together where one sort of swallows up the other. We want to, again, pray with the confidence that God can and also pray with this confidence that he tells us here that he desires to give us the things that are according to his will. Uh, and yet at the same time, right, to leave all things in our good father's hands, knowing that he is going to give us uh, what is best. This is one reason the, the longer I've been a pastor, the longer I've been a Christian, I really appreciate the Lord's Prayer more and more. You're talking about this confidence that we have, and John's talking about that here, to know that this is the prayer that the very Son of God has given so that we would pray it to our Father. I mean, those are the things we know God wants to give us. And, and to what you're saying about physical healing— that's there in the Lord's prayer. It's there in the fourth petition. Give us this day our daily bread, the needs of this life. And so we we do have the confidence that God wants to hear our prayers for physical healing, and he desires to answer them. Now, as you said, we do live on this side of the resurrection. And so the, you know, the physical life will fully be given and realized in all of God's glory for it in the resurrection. So we always keep that in mind. But at the same time, I, I, 
I, I sense the same thing that you do sometimes as well, that those prayers for healing, we, it's like we don't always expect them because so often it, maybe it doesn't happen to the point that we lose the confidence, we lose the boldness. And we don't, while we always want to recognize that, yes, we're looking forward to the resurrection of the dead, we shouldn't let that lose the confidence that God wants our prayers to have. Yeah, I remember having a, a Christian friend at a job I worked at in high school, and he was uh, of a different Christian denomination. But I, I really did learn from him about this confidence in prayer. I mean, and, and maybe to some extent, he was confident about things that were not even necessarily revealed in God's will. But, you know, he would tell his friends, tell me something to pray about, and then God will, you know, answer that prayer and you'll know that God is real. And when he first said that, I thought, oh man, you're taking a real chance there, right? You know, what if God doesn't come through? And then the more I talked to him, I thought, well, gosh, you know, perhaps if there's an error, we should err on that side, right? That believing that God is going to uh, answer these things and having that kind of confidence in our God that we sort of, you know, stake his reputation on his own promises, which I think he certainly tells us to do. Mm, yeah. And the, one of the, perhaps a, a way that you see this prayer in scripture very well, and, I, and I'm not going to be able to flip to it quickly enough, but it's in, it's in Daniel chapter three, the, the three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they're refusing to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol, the way that they express the confidence in prayer, I think is, is fitting for what we're talking about. So here we go. It's in Daniel three verses 16 and 17. The, the three young men, they say, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So, I mean, I've always been struck by that statement. I suppose it's not a prayer in that sense. They're, they're giving their confidence to Nebuchadnezzar as a confession of faith, but they have that absolute confidence that God's going to rec rescue them. But they also say, but if not, we might actually die in the fiery furnace. <laughs> right. But either way, that doesn't shake our confidence in God. And, and perhaps, again, sometimes it seems like, and may, I don't know if it's us as Lutherans or just Americans or whatever, but we do, we, we, are, we couch that confidence a little bit, whereas Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are able to hold those things together. Yeah, I think at times we're actually trying to protect God. Right. We're, Maybe. you know, we're almost like we're afraid he's not going to come through. And again, you know, it's it's one of those things, too, that as you mature in faith, you you do have to say, you know, God has promised this. It's his promise. It's not up to me to worry about if he's going to keep his promise. And yeah, he might, again, keep that promise in a little different way than we expect or sometimes in a, a much different way than we expect. But let us not ever say like, God has promised, but I'm worried that he won't come through because he does always. Yeah, he does. And that, that is the confidence that, that John is instilling in these verses. So this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So this is, a, I mean, a wonderful confidence. And I, you know, to what you were saying about your your friend of a different confession of faith that had that confidence, you know, when you receive it, you'll know that God gave it. I think sometimes we we forget about that, that we receive those things that we've prayed for, and then we forget to give thanks, as Luther teaches us to do in the fourth petition, right? That we know that God gives good things to all people, even evil people, and they don't ask. But when we ask and he gives, that should teach us to give thanks. And I think that element of thanksgiving is present there in John's writing as well. No, I think absolutely. And I think you're you're right about that. I know I struggle just even in, you know, the prayers on Sunday morning that they're probably not nearly as filled with Thanksgiving as they should be, right? When we, you know, quote unquote, just take someone off the prayer list, right? Well, how about giving thanks to God that they've, you know, been removed from their suffering? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think sometimes, and maybe this is just me, but our as Lutherans, we're we want to avoid enthusiasm and, and theologically speaking, that looking for God outside of his word and sacraments to the point that sometimes when we receive these answers of prayer that are certainly God's doing, we're overly careful about saying it because we don't want people to start looking for God outside of his word and sacrament. But if he's answered his prayer according to his promise, that is his word being fulfilled. And so again, 
we want to avoid the errors, but not to the point that we fall into a different one. Absolutely. No, I think you're, you're exactly right. All right. So have this confidence in prayers, brothers and sisters. And maybe, Pastor Hopp, because we're coming up on the break, you, you have a passage from Hebrews that, that relates to this same confidence. Why don't you give us that, and then we'll pick up more of First John on the other side of the break. Sure. Hebrews 14 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect, or sorry, excuse me, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The author of the Hebrews tells us here, one of the reasons, right, we can go with boldness is because Christ uh, has been tempted as we are. And yet it is this same confidence that, I mean, think about how going before the throne of grace was just a forbidden concept in the old covenant. And now we're told, go, go to the throne of grace and have confidence that you're going to find mercy. You're going to find grace. You're not going to be struck down by drawing near. You're going to find all of God's grace and mercy, one for you in Christ. Yeah, go to the throne of grace in confidence and ask for the biggest things that God has for you, and he will deliver. What a, what a wonderful promise that our Lord gives us. We're going to keep looking at this text from 1 John chapter 5 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Philip Hoppy this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, May 3rd. We're studying 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 to 21 with Pastor Philip Hoppe. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Pastor Hoppe, prior to the break, we were talking about the wonderful promise that we have from the Lord that he will hear our prayers according to his will and he will grant those to us. That gives us great confidence. As John continues then into verse 16, he starts giving us an example of when we should pray in such a way. He talks about seeing a brother committing sin that doesn't lead to death, then we should ask God. But then he talks about the sin that does lead to death, and he says he's not talking about that. There's some there's some difficult things here, some things that require some careful examination. Help us into these verses. Yeah. So, I mean, again, I think when you first read this, you kind of, even if you've been reading John's gospel, this language kind of strikes you as different and you kind of go, okay, wait, now what is he talking about? Is he talking about something much different? Uh, And we should say this verse has been, I mean, spoken of in all sorts of different ways at different times. Um, In the Roman Catholic circles, this is one of their passages where they'll talk about this difference between mortal and venial sins, where they'll talk about, again, sins that are, um, uh, this is going to be an oversimplification, but are really grave and other ones that are not so grave. Um, And, you know, they'll use this passage as a way to kind of uh, get the two categories. Um, There are others that take this passage to speak of physical death here, right? That, that, uh, that uh, John is talking about a sin that would actually lead uh, to physical death. I guess I'm convinced that those that speak that way are really taking uh, a false doctrine and trying to impose it on the text. They're taking this doctrine that one cannot fall away from the faith and they're 
concerned uh, here because they see the word brother and then they see this idea of leading to death and they just say, well, you know, they believe this doctrine you might have, right, people might have heard of, of eternal security that once one is saved, once one is saved, they uh, are always saved. And they kind of reach a passage like this, which so kind of clearly teaches that one can uh, fall into spiritual death after having the life of Christ and they just can't take it. And so they change the meaning to something that to me doesn't even make sense. You know, when you look at um, this idea of physical death, I mean, if it was just the first verse, maybe you could say that. Uh, and certainly we know that sin and physical death are related. But when he goes on later, you know, to continue to talk about this, you just don't get the sense that he's talking about physical death. Um, and so, again, in my estimation, he's really saying the same thing he said throughout this letter. And uh, I always, when I teach this book of the Bible, which I've, I've done a couple times fairly recently, um, I always talk that John's trying to keep us out of two ditches. He's trying to keep us out of the ditch of believing that we have no sin, right? This kind of uh, overconfidence in our own abilities or our own righteousness before God. But at the same time, he's trying to keep us out of the ditch of believing that we can walk in unrepentant sin and still think all things are well between us and God. And I really think this is just a restatement of that in different language. So he's saying here that the, the brother who is committing a sin that's not leading to death is that we're talking about sins here of weakness. That, uh, again, I like to use that phrase, falling into sin rather than walking in sin. Um, and he's simply saying here, when we see a brother Christian doing this, uh, we should pray. And you know what? This is one of those things we know for certain is God's will that that brother would turn from sin and have life. And so when we ask for it, again, we should have confidence that God, this is a prayer that God loves to answer. Uh, and it says there, right, that he shall ask and God will give him life. Speaking of the one who is committing sin. So this is, you know, James tells us, right, to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another that we might be healed. Uh, this is that kind of idea here, too, that we should not forget that we are called not only to intercede on the physical needs of our, for the physical needs of our neighbor, but also their spiritual needs. Um, and I believe that's what's being talked about here is that he's saying, when you see a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ here, we could rightly throw in in this context that one of the things we should do is pray for them. We may also need to talk. We may need to exhort. We may need to do those things. But let's start with praying for them because we don't want them to end up in sin that leads to death. Hmm. So, I mean, to, to go into the the oft-quoted Matthew 18 passage where if, if your brother sins against you, go to him— Right, you go to him first. Part of part of what John is is helping us to see in our Lord's teaching there is before you maybe even before you go talk to him, certainly before you tell your pastor about it, pray for your brother in Christ. Pray pray for him as he has fallen into sin, so that the Lord will hear that. And again, you know, thinking about those difficult conversations, expect that the Lord will bring about the repentance that He desires in this brother who has fallen into sin. And needs to be helped. So that's what John says to those committing, and he says commits a sin lead that doesn't lead to death. So that would be the, as you've termed, and I think it's helpful, a brother who falls into sin or a sin of weakness, one that's not, say, premeditated, or it's not a path that I've laid out. I think the other language you use is walking in sin. So that's the maybe the easier part of this passage to understand and hear. But what about what John says about the sin that leads to death? And he says, I don't say that one should pray for that. Right. And this is a part that I admit, like every time I look at this too, right, it, it is a part that I struggle with too, because we are uh, so, you know, we're told so many times to, you know, pray for enemies and those who persecute us. And then we're told here, you know, don't pray for the one that is um, committing this sin that leads to death. And again here, I think when we're talking about the sin that leads to death, I, I believe we are talking about, you know, eternal death, um, that we're talking about spiritual death. 
And, um, you know, this is a place, again, where we can uh, get some of this language from the book of Hebrews. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm taking this to another passage that's very difficult to understand. Uh, but there again, you know, he, uh, uh, if you remember this in Hebrews 6, um, the author of the Hebrews there says, you know, it's impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared with the Holy Spirit, uh, and who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come when they have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Uh, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to content. The first thing I'd like to say about all this, this is serious sin we're talking about here, right? This is not someone, again, falling into sin. This is repeated, willful, unrepentant sin. Uh, and even, you know, if we take the passage from Hebrews, there's almost a a boasting in the sin, a uh, arrogance about the sin, right? That you're going to uh, hold Jesus up to contempt through your sin. Uh, you're almost doing it to spite him. So again, we don't want to just jump to this in all cases, uh, or in, in most cases, probably is the best way to say it. Um, I guess I'd say if you're in doubt, pray for your brother, right? Yeah. Um, that's That's certainly where we should go. But there are these times, again, and, um, you know, where we, this is the biblical language of the hardening of the heart. And all of these things are somewhat mysterious to us because they're not clear to our eyes when they have occurred uh, or when God has, you know, allowed a person that has hardened their heart to sort of become hardened. You know, there's that kind of double language in the scriptures. Uh, but when that has occurred, then that is not the thing that we are specifically supposed to be praying for. Um, I, I don't take this as a, a, a hateful thing here at all. Uh, I take it as a recognition that some people, again, have completely left behind the faith. And certainly, at least at that point, we're not praying for them as a brother anymore. Uh, we're praying for them perhaps now as our enemy or as those who are persecuting Christ, uh, but it is a different matter at this time. But it is, it's is—it's a hard thing. And uh, again, we want to be careful not to apply this too quickly. So I think what you just said there about we recognize that we're not praying for them as a brother anymore, but now we're praying for them as an enemy. I think that's a really helpful comment. Uh, that, was, that was very helpful. As I was, as I was thinking through this passage in preparation for our conversation— one of us like, well, okay, how, how are we going to apply this? And I started to, to think through the life of Jesus. And uh, I, I think at least he gives us one example of, of a way that we should understand it from his, from the cross where he prays, father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And I mean, so I think that at least gives us one way we, we see Jesus himself praying for I mean, most of the people there, they certainly look to us like they've hardened their hearts. They're crucifying the Lord, but he still prays for their forgiveness in their ignorance. And, and the other example that I thought of scripturally, and you, you brought up, you know, hardening your own heart and then it being hardened. That's the language that we get in the book of Exodus. And you think about the interactions that Moses has with the Pharaoh leading up to the 10th and final plague. And I, it's before the final plague or yeah, it's before the final plague, I think, where the Pharaoh tells Moses, get out of my presence. You know, if you see me again, I'm going to kill you. And Moses says, okay. That, and and it's it's almost like Moses then is is putting these words of John into practice ahead of time. I, I thought both of those examples, again, trying to think through how we use these words, those were ways that I, I guess we could see in scripture examples, I think, of what John's talking about. Yeah. And I, I don't want to, overplay this, but I think there's almost a stewardship of our time involved here where, you know, those that are hardened, do we spend, you know, a ton of time uh, continuing to try out to reach out to them as if they are not hardened, right? Or again, do we spend our time where I think the scriptures tell us to spend our time, which is 
right? The encouragement of the brothers and uh, at times the uh, rebuke of the brothers, right? To draw them back to faith. But that's certainly a thing that we're supposed to spend more of our time on. Uh, ultimately, that ultimate hardening, right, is going to be the judgment of God, right? Um, again, there's times he might use his church um, in that light. But again, I think especially as individual Christians, um, we don't want to, you know, think too much of ourselves to make this judgment all the time and then say, well, I'm not going to pray for that person anymore. Um, and so, yeah, it, it is hard, but I think you're right in leading us to those other places in Scripture. Yeah, and I, to, to what you're saying, I think, you know, you mentioned previously the error of once saved, always saved is something that we would avoid based on the first part of these verses we're talking about. And I think we, we want to make sure that however we take, you know, there is sin that leads to death. I don't say that one should pray for that. We should not hear in that the error of double predestination, that somehow this means God does not desire the salvation of this person who has hardened himself, hardened himself in this way. This, this passage does not contradict you know, passages like 1 Timothy 2, where Paul says that God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, or Ezekiel, where the Lord says, I desire not the death of the sinner. This this passage does not say that. So we want to make sure that we we understand the passage in that light. And I, I, again, I think there's there's something to what you're saying about the stewardship of time. And, and also, again, I, I really appreciate what you said about the, we recognize now he's not the brother that we're praying for. We're praying for him in a different way. And, and let that, you know, fall underneath the prayers that we've talked about already, the Lord's Prayer. We're praying for God's kingdom to come, even to this, un, this one who was a believer and now is an unbeliever, and let those prayers cover those things that maybe we can't, we can't see as clearly from this passage. No, absolutely. And, and again, that, you know, we are to have that spirit of Christ that desires the salvation of all as well, right? We're not to uh, want to bring down fire upon people prematurely, but instead we're, uh, you know, again, in every way trying, again, it, it's just a question of, again, how we're regarding this person at the time um, that will inform what our prayers actually say for that person, right? And again, it might be a different prayer to say, be with my brother in Christ who is struggling, than to say, be with this one who is, you know, left behind you and your church or, you know, and is walking and living in sin. It's a different prayer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I think we've we've pretty well covered also verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. That, does that fall under what you were saying earlier about the difference between falling into sin and walking in sin? Yeah, and just that John won't let us, even that falling into sin, he won't let us take that lightly, right? Yeah. That that sin, too, is very serious and needs the propitiation of Jesus, uh, lest we be damned for it. And so it's it really is just, I think he's concluding here again, to keep us out of that ditch of thinking, well, if mine's a sin not leading to death, big deal, right? No, it is a big that's deal. Right. Yeah, that's right, which is why when you see your brother committing that sin, you pray for him and ask God to help. In verse 18, he continues to repeat things, to come back to things that he said. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We've kind of touched on the, the first half of that verse. What about the second half? Well, interestingly, I was reading Luther on this a little bit today, and he translates this a little differently. He's, he translates it the the birth of God protects him. So Luther kind of takes this almost as, you know, that rebirth of holy baptism is the thing that's protecting him. I, I tend to have taken this as Jesus is that firstborn uh, that is the one that's protecting him. And I guess if you put the two together, they go together perfectly, right? The, the firstborn from the dead who were connected to in that new birth of holy baptism is this one, uh, again, that is protecting us and is making us untouchable from the devil, which again is what a wonderful promise, right? That if Christ is with us, the devil can't touch us. And again, we uh, might be tempted to disbelieve that even because of our own experience, but this is the word of God, right? So let us uh, know and rest uh, in Christ, but this is not either way, even if we take it as 
you know, our own baptism, this doesn't give credit to us. It's certainly here that, that Christ is the one who gives us this untouchable nature uh, and therefore, right, frees us from the dominion of sin uh, to walk in righteousness. Yeah, yeah. What a wonderful promise. Again, I'm reminded of the way Jesus speaks in Luke 10, where he he talks about he sees Satan fall like lightning. And among other things, Jesus says, nothing shall hurt you. And again, you're like, well, well, wait, things could hurt me. Right. But again, to to go back to that prayer or the the confession of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're not going to bow down to you, O king, because God's going to deliver us. Even if he doesn't, he's going to deliver us. Yeah. So even if I die now, nothing can hurt me. Satan cannot harm me. This is, I mean, Luther at the end of a mighty fortress, the kingdom ours remaineth. Whatever they take, nothing hurts. This is Abraham going up with Isaac, right? From Hebrews that we're told, right? He he doesn't know how, but somehow all of God's word's going to be true. He doesn't know how he can both kill his son and bring him back down alive, but he believes both those things are going to happen. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And as the writer of Hebrews says, that's he, it's because Abraham believed in the resurrection of the dead. And right. it's, it's remarkable how that faith in the resurrection comes through throughout the scriptures. It, it fits perfectly here with what John is writing. He continues into verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What's he saying there? Well, I mean, here, John loves to divide the world up into just two groups of people. And I think rightly so. And I think we can learn from this. We like to kind of have a lot of gray area that there are sort of believers and unbelievers. And then there's sort of these other people uh, in the middle. I mean, we use all sorts of terms, you know, pre-believers, seekers, then maybe on the other side, you know, we talk about people that are agnostic. And, and again, some of these terms can be helpful technically when you're speaking about things. But John says, nope, you're either in the power of Christ or you're under the power of the evil one. Those are the only two options. Whether you know it or not, you're in one of those two camps. And those who are born of God are with him, and those who are not are with the evil one. Yeah, we've seen John speak that way throughout this epistle. There are these two families. We are from the family of God, and that is that is good news. In verse 20, John says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Take us into verse 20. I mean, wow, right? We could do a whole episode on on this passage. And one, one of the things that I think is really amazing, in fact, one commentator I read said this is perhaps the most explicit statement of Jesus's deity in the whole Bible. And, Mm. you know, there might be a couple others that would be up there in the top five to be sure, but this is so clear. And this is where um, John, right, in his Greek language is uh, beautifully simplistic at times. So there's no wondering what he's saying. And he just says, right, this is the true God. I mean, that's the only words there. There's nothing to to fudge around with there at all. And to think about that, right, that here we are with John, again, who is writing this, obviously, you know, uh, during his own lifetime, so not very long after Christ, and people who would say that, you know, the deity of Christ is a later invention. You know, John yells here, no, this is the true God. Jesus is the true God. And because of that, he's eternal life as well. Uh, He is these things. Not only does he give eternal life, he is eternal life. And therefore, if you have him and he abides in you and you and him, you have eternal life. What, what wonderful promises. And don't you, don't you wish John had stopped with that verse? That, I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> it's kind of like with his gospel, you expect him, you thought he was done in, in chapter 20, but then he gives you a whole extra chapter. <laughs> yeah. And John has just given us this marvelous statement of the, of who Jesus is, which as you pointed out, he's been saying these things all along. It's, it's certainly evident in his gospel. It's been evident throughout his his epistle here that this is what he believes about Jesus. But as you said, he he states it so wonderfully, so succinctly there. But then he gives you one more thing, and this is just John being John, I guess. <laughs> Little children, keep yourselves from idols, and then that's it. that's it. 
Right. Yeah. No, the Lutheran sermon would definitely end at verse 20, right? That's yeah. right. <laughs> we would have got a better grade at seminary for that sermon. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, but I, I think really, again, if you go back to the basic purpose of why he says he writes, again, we've been told that, yes, he writes to give us this confidence uh, in Christ, and that's certainly true, but he really does write to, to deal with the issue of Christians who think they can just go on continuing in sin. And I would actually argue that that's the most consistent message throughout this. Again, that doesn't mean it's the most important message in the Bible. It certainly is not. Uh, Christ's salvation for us is. But I do think it's the main purpose of his writing. And so we shouldn't find it very, um, you know, confusing that he returns to it one final time. But also, let's say he says children here, right? He gives us this great pastoral fatherly approach where he says, you know, dear children, and why are you children? Because you're born of the family of God. Now don't, don't go back to idols, whatever idols, right? Whether they're idols crafted with hands or just idols crafted in our hearts, don't go back there. Um, and, you know, he just, again, this has been his purpose all along where he says, you know, I write you in order that you will not continue to sin. But then, of course, since we're a good Lutheran podcast, right, he tells us that, but when we do sin, uh, we, of course, have that, that propitiation of Jesus Christ, that uh, atoning sacrifice for our sins, um, and we rejoice in that when we do fall into sin. Uh, but yet, he definitely wants us to leave knowing that we're not supposed to go on sinning because it's just not who we are anymore. It's not who Christ has made us to be. We're untouchable because of Jesus. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, again, I, I joke about that, and you're, you're probably right. It wouldn't get the best grade at seminary, but it's, it's certainly appropriate here because as John has been dealing with this matter of don't keep on sinning, well, the opposite of keeping on sinning is to show love, and John has consistently connected the love that we would have for the brothers with the love that God has first shown us. And so the only the only way that he knows that he can bring those who read this letter into that kind of love is to show them the love God has, and that must be the true God. And there's the, you know, keep yourselves from idols. I don't, we haven't really talked too much, at least explicitly, about the first commandment within this epistle, but it's certainly there because it is only the true God who would show us the kind of love that he has in his son so that we then would show forth that love to the brothers. So as, you know, as much as we joke about it, this really is the place to conclude, to come back to who is the true God, how has he loved you, and in that knowledge and faith, then you are equipped to go and love the brothers. Got about two minutes here to wrap things up, Pastor Hoppy. Yeah, and I don't know if you're familiar with this tradition, and I, I can't source it uh, for those listening right now, but you know, I've been told that there's stories of the Apostle John at the end of his life when he was so frail, right, that people would cart him in essentially to give the sermon, and all he could utter was, little children love one another, right? So indeed, this is at the heart of how he understands the salvation of Christ to work out in our life. And again, we as Lutherans should understand this, that this is not an additional striving to love our brothers. It's actually something that happens to us when we are given this new birth, when Christ does come to dwell in us. His love is actually there, and so then it actually flows out of us loving one another instead of loving idols. Pastor Philip Hoppe is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. He has been helping us today to study 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 to 21. Pastor Hoppe, thanks for being our guest today. So glad to be with you. In Christ, we have certainty. God has spoken, and so we know that we have eternal life. He makes fabulous promises, and we hold him to those promises in prayer Lest we fall into sin or walk in sin, we know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the true God. Therefore, keep yourselves from idols. 
I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. The next two days, we will be picking up the next two epistles written by St. John, 2nd John and 3rd John, and then we will dive into the book of Revelation. If you have any questions about the next two epistles of John or the book of Revelation coming up after that, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.